Well, thank you all, all for coming. Uh, it's the, close to the 70th anniversary of the partition. I'm sure we have a number of people in the audience who bring their own or their own family's experience to this event. I know we have some scholars of South Asia of issues that affect this important region. And we have a lot of students and others from the community who maybe are just here from that wonderful attribute of curiosity. Um, so welcome. Uh, I'm Sherm Garnett. I'm the Dean of Madison College. I'm privileged to introduce this event. I have a few administrative things to say. Um, unfortunately, the first is obvious that Professor Vazira Zamindar could not be here this evening. She very much looked forward to the event, but had uh, an accident, suffered earlier this year, and the progress was much slower than she expected. We are going to invite her here sometime this year because I, I admire her book very much, The Long Partition and the Making of Modern South Asia. And um, so we're going we're gonna to try to bring her in the next few months. I also want to thank all of the sponsors, the Michigan State University India Council, which hosted a wonderful dinner for our speakers last night, Asian Studies Center, the College of Ag and Natural Resources, uh, the College of Arts and Letters, College of Education, the Muslim Studies Program, and the Office of the Associate Provost for Undergraduate Education as well as the Office of the Vice President for Administrative Services, the Office of the Vice President for Research, and the Office for Inclusion and Intercultural Initiatives. You know, we, Linda Rishapi and I thought about this about a year ago. We planned on it, worked on it. We've got some great speakers, but we really couldn't have brought it off without this help. So let me also remind everybody here that we have a full day of panel discussions and dialogue on the third floor of the International Center tomorrow beginning at 8.30 with a roundtable on issues of the partition, followed by a set of panels on environmental, cultural, and agricultural and developmental legacies of this part of the world. So you're all invited. Um, the format tonight will be to ask each speaker to offer a 15 to 20 minute overview and then I'm some questions and dialogue from the audience. So uh, I, I'm a scholar of Russian literature. I'm not a scholar of South Asian history or any of these issues. They are there, and they're the focus of the evening. Many more such scholars from Michigan State will be present tomorrow. I guess I'm a representative of one of those who has come out of curiosity. And also, I think, a sense that something in the history of South Asia and especially of India at this turning point is really important to this crucial and still uncertain 21st century. So I have wanted, and I hope all of you are aware, that we've wanted to work with other units on campus in making a serious effort to study this part of the world. And uh, Madison has always had uh, faculty with expertise in this region, such as my colleagues, Linda Rashapi, Mark Axarod, and Professor Emeritus Muhammad Ayub. We've added two more, Sajiti Dasgupta and uh, I guess we still share Hashini um, Galhena. Um, we're going to look more at food security and agriculture and rural development in this part of the world. We have an active research program underway in South Asia with local partners in Delhi, Chennai, Cochin, Trivandrum. We have a study abroad for you students that goes every other year to Sri Lanka. 
which is not a bad place to go. <laughs> and we're going to add one to some place in southern India, which is also not a bad place to go. More important, I think, is we've been part of a larger effort by MSU to do more in South Asia and to bring more students from the region here. We've supported more work uh, and, a, and a really good person to help recruit students out of South Asia. We work with the College of Agriculture to pool our perspectives and talents on a whole set of issues that we hope um, we can do more research with them. We welcome Professor Rajmohan Gandhi and his wife Usha here for three straight years. Last year he gave a series of lectures on Mahatma Gandhi and the book as a result why Gandhi still matters is out from Aleph Book Company Press. It's on Amazon.com. I, I don't get any royalties, but I, I think it's good. He's also presenting two public lectures on the 27th and 28th, yes, at Madison College on the third floor in Case Hall. Um, this is going to be a bit on, or it's going to be on South Asian history. We'd, we'd welcome um, Professor Ayub and, and, and I and a couple of others helped to stimulate the Muslim Studies program into existence. We uh, love the minor, the new minor in Indian and South Asian languages and cultures. I think there's a couple of uh, brochures here. And we're hoping someday that'll turn into a full major. I would personally, if anybody's listening, be excited to see us have a historian of South Asia on the campus of modern South Asia. So we believe as a university in the importance of this part of the world and in the chance for academic, economic, social, and cultural partnership with the universities of the region. So it's fitting tonight we turn to an event that brought modern South Asia into being. It was a culmination of a national and anti-colonial social and political movements that have much deeper roots than just uh, the few years that when the South Asia went from a colony to independent countries. If you know anything about it, it was a bloody and confused affair, especially as the British in the end made haste to withdraw after centuries of saying they'd never give up their hold on their jewel in the crown. Many presumed that the violence to come was not possible, even after many worked hard to suggest deep and abiding differences among peoples who probably before thought that they shared a common culture. Uh, I don't think either speaker plans to dwell on the few months from, say, May to December, but perhaps 15 million people were displaced and moved. And, and I've seen different figures, but maybe a million or even as many as 2 million people died in this. Um, but it was also the beginning of new states that nevertheless have old histories, new identities and claims grafted onto old ones. It was a founding of development and development of new laws and constitutions, a process that lasted years. And as Professor Guha has told me, one scholar has called it creating fundamental rights from the backdrop of fundamental wrongs. The Indian Constitution speaks as eloquently as our own though it adopts some different principles and perspectives of equality, social justice, and freedom. It attacks issues of caste, religion, and gender equality. 
It created federal states based on different languages. And as a teacher at Madison, I wonder what the Federalists would have said about a place that their states each spoke different languages and had to deal with so much poverty. It attacked issues of gender equality. As in our own history, the struggle of bringing meaning to these words has had its ups and downs. And I personally think they're in a moment of downs in India. On, not on economic terms, but I think on trying to figure out how to bring this Constitution to light. And it struck me that states in such a moment, I mean, we also have at times these moments where we are challenged to live up to ideals of justice and laws that we believe in, the founding document principles. These are the things I think that have won the day at better moments. And I think for those of us who are not connected to this region in as organic a way as some in the audience, especially for the students, um, it's really important for America to come to an understanding of this historical event and the regional and global aftermath and to take some comparative lessons from it, especially as we're in the middle of a debate about citizenship, social justice, class, race, and openness. We have with us tonight two scholars and public intellectuals of enormous accomplishment and standing, people of international reputation, Professors Ramachandra Guha and Rajmohan Gandhi. I can't do them justice, even if I listed all their books. I sort of counted it up. I'm not sure I was quite right, but they're the authors or editors of more than three dozen books, illuminating Indian history, politics, social movements, environmental questions, and even cricket which is, at least for us Americans, the ultimate mystery. <laughs> Professor Gandhi has written on the work and legacy of Mahatma Gandhi. Um, he doesn't advertise this widely, but I can't not say that he's Mahatma Gandhi's grandson, one of several. <laughs> uh, yes. But I think if you read his works, you'll realize these are not family memoirs. Uh, the Good Boatman, Mahandas, and the most recent book I mentioned above are serious inquiries into the legacy and life of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. He's written biographies of Ghaffar Khan, who's sometimes called the frontier Gandhi for his commitment to nonviolence. He's written a biography of Sadar Patel. Um, he's compared the American Civil War and the Indian Rebellion of 1857 in the book A Tale of Two Revolts. In Revenge and Reconciliation, he took on the entire sweep of Indian history, while in his Punjab and his current project on the history of South India, he's tried to make sense of India's important regions. Professor Guha has written path-breaking books on environmental issues such as The Unquiet Woods, Ecological Change and Peasant Resistance in the Himalaya, uh, This Fizzard Land, The Ecological History of India, Ecology and Equity. These are a set of books that, I, I don't know, they, they sort of floored me because I guess I would have to say I'm, I think you even talked about Americans who are tiger people or grizzly bear people, which I would say I am, but you reminded uh, everyone of a kind of social justice that has to accompany uh, ecological preservation, uh, the needs of the indigenous and the poor. As a historian, he's written a biography of uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Gandhi before India, and I hope a second volume is to follow. 
His history of India, India after Gandhi is outstanding. It's not only good airplane reading, it's uh, good reading anytime. I won't even begin to comment on his books on cricket, um, but they're widely regarded by, I guess, people outside of America who understand the sport. Um, I have learned yesterday that he's even edited a selection of writings on M. Krishnan, one of India's foremost naturalists. I took his collections of essays and anthropologists among Marxists and the last liberal and other essays uh, on recent trips to India. I think he's doubtless India's most prominent public intellectual. I know both speakers are wonderful teachers, long associations with some of the best universities in India and the world. They are public intellectuals engaged in the issues of the day, often standing in opposition to the prevailing view and reminding others of unpleasant truths and the demands of justice. They are wonderful writers. Nothing in their work is turgid, like many works of scholarship, and I think you, one can even learn the liberating power of English, its ability to be clear, persuasive, and inspiring from their works. Now, I've come to know Professor Gandhi quite well over the last three years, and I would hope to call him and Usha my friends. I can say, um, that for all his remarkable accomplishments, what impresses me most is that fire of kindness and human sympathy and unwillingness to stop doing the work of what the Talmud called perfecting the world. I know firsthand his power as a teacher. And I only met Professor Guha yesterday. I'm kind of overwhelmed with his enthusiasm, breadth of knowledge, energy, and warmth. Uh, we are in a time when both countries where we claim to want our own narrative of things, to reject facts as fake. Um, I understand that. I think it's pretty normal for individuals to want to construct their own version of the world. But they're not what we are at our highest. We know why things happen despite the facts. We know why people deny the political affiliation of Mahatma Gandhi's assassin or claim that Robert E. Lee's statue is simply uh, to honor a great general. I think these scholars remind us what scholarship and public commentary is for, to bring facts and perspectives to light that illuminate the way forward. So even if we live in contentious times, and even if we can't ultimately agree on that way forward, I think it's just a better world to be in where these kinds of illustrations of what things were and what things could be exist. So we're lucky to have these scholars here tonight. So let me welcome them to the podium and ask Professor Guha to begin. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you all. I, I'm delighted and honored to be here today, uh, especially to share a panel with Raj Mohan Gandhi, uh, <coughs> my distinguished senior compatriot whose writings and uh, work has inspired me greatly over the years. I could give a one-hour lecture on Raj Mohan Gandhi before I met Raj Mohan Gandhi. <laughs> uh, and so let me just give you one, one hint, a terrible and tragic moment in the modern history of India was happened on 6th December 1992 when 
uh, a dispute broke, uh, a long simmering dispute resulted in the destruction of a 16th century mosque, which resulted further in the killings of hundreds, perhaps thousands of Indians, mostly from the minority Muslim community. And it was an act that shattered all of us. And I took to my bed for a, several weeks and could do nothing after that because it was, uh, it was symbolically uh, an act of destruction, not only of a shrine, but of the ideas that had bound my country. And my first act as a citizen after that, so this was 6th December 1992, occurred on 26th January 1993, which was a month and a half later, when I was persuaded by my friends to get out of bed and do something. And I joined a march. It was a march along the center of New Delhi. Leading it was some Buddhist priests. And among the remarkable citizens there was the tall and towering figure of Raj Mohan Gandhi whom I'd never met till then, I'd read his books. I'd read his books, I'd been inspired by his books, uh, his biography of Patel, of Rajagopalachari. Uh, Mohan, you may remember that much, 26th January, 1993, going, there was Dilip Padgaonkar, Siv Vishwanathan, and uh, so to be here with him, someone who has been uh, an exemplary scholar, uh, I'm particularly, you know, honored to be here today. So we're going to speak on partition and its consequences. As Sherman said, it was an act that led to terrible suffering. More than a million people died. More than 10 million people crossed borders. Hindus and Sikhs fleeing Pakistan for India and Muslims fleeing India for Pakistan. Now the I'm going to just leave you with two, uh, 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 pose two questions before moving forward from partition. The first question is, could it have been avoided? This is something on which hundreds of books have been written. <coughs> if so, when could have it been avoided? Uh, it possibly could have been avoided, but only a decade or more previously. I mean, there's a romantic story going around that Gandhi offered Jinnah the prime ministership of an undivided India, and if that had been accepted, in, but that's, that's a romantic story. The polarization between Hindus and Muslims from the late 1930s had become so intense that, in my view as a historian, it could not have been avoided after 1939. I've argued that this in my book, India After Gandhi. So the second question, could the suffering have been minimized? And here, yes. And uh, it could have been minimized if the British had acted more wisely. And I think this country knows a lot about when the British don't act wisely. And so do we. And so do the Pakistanis. The partition was rushed. Mountbatten did it in three or four months where an entire subcontinent was divided. Populations had to move. The administration, even the Imperial Library, there's a fantastic big portrait of the librarian of the Imperial Library with a pile of books saying India and Pakistan. So it's as if your library has to be divided in two, in 10 hours, right? Now, uh, so it's true, it was rushed and also Mountbatten made the colossal error 
of deploying the army excessively around the British population. You know, there were just 150,000 English people in India. And some of them were in very remote locations. So there were missionaries in the Northeast. There were planters in Assam. Uh, there were school teachers in Kashmir. And large proportions of the army were sent to protect the British. But the British were quite safe. It was Indian civilians who were at risk. And the Punjab, the province on which Rajmohan Gandhi is written a book, was where the greatest violence broke out. And Mountbatten staff had told him that you must send army detachments to the Punjab. And he rejected that advice. So arguably, at least after 1939, when the Second World War broke out and many think complicated things happened, partition could not have been avoided. But certainly the suffering, the loss of life, could have been massively minimized. And the major culpability for the suffering and the loss of life is that of the British administration at the time. And in my view, the Governor General Mountbatten himself bears a large share of responsibility. But let me move further on. Now, what have India and Pakistan done since then? It's a long and complicated and tumultuous history. It's a history that cannot be captured by Rajmohan Gandhi's dozen books or my dozen books or the books of lots and lots of other people. But I want to highlight two or three aspects of that history. And to start with, the history of my country. No new nation was born in more difficult circumstances. When India was independent, it was against the backdrop of partition, uh, the, the flight of refugees, horrific religious violence, war, privation. The British left some 500 small chiefdoms ruled by Maharajas and Nawabs, and they had to be brought on board. The Indian government had to draft a constitution, a foreign policy, an economic policy, a social policy. Uh, so it was an extraordinary uh, challenge. Now, I come from Bangalore, which is supposed to be India's Silicon Valley. It's the home of Indian startups and the home of India's most far-seeing venture capitalists. And I sometimes say, if the Republic of India had been a startup in 1947, no one would have invested in it. It was going to collapse. Even the most optimistic investor would not have invested in it. But why did this startup, why is it still together 70 years later? Why is it a moderately successful democracy? Why does it have a flourishing uh, economy? And I think a very important reason for that is the leadership of the first generation of the founders of India. Uh, I know a little bit about the history of this country. And I would say what is common to India and the United States is that they were founded by visionaries. And great nations, this is a lesson for all young people who despair about politics today, in either your country or mine, Great nations can be led in mid-career by mediocrities as long as they were founded by visionaries. What's important is the quality of the people who found the nation. There's a massive distance between Thomas Jefferson and Donald Trump. <laughs> right. But there's an equally massive uh, dis distance between Mahatma Gandhi and Narendra Modi. 
But fortunately, Gandhi came before Modi and Jefferson before Trump. <laughs> so the quality of leadership at founding is very important. And India was particularly fortunate in having multiple leaders. <clears throat> I, uh, Rajmohan Gandhi's book, The Good Boatman, which was mentioned earlier, has a wonderful chapter called Sons and Heirs, which explains why Mahatma Gandhi chose Jawaharlal Nehru as his political successor. Now, this chapter should be read by every Indian because Nehru was a greatly venerated figure when he was alive and is totally despised now. And he's despised not partly because of misunderstanding of what he did, but mostly because of the misdeeds of his family. It is said in the Bible that the sins of the father will be visited on seven successive generations. In the case of Nehru, the sins of seven successive generations have been retrospectively visited on him. So he was an extraordinary figure. And he had an understanding of democracy, of diversity, of pluralism that he derived from Mahatma Gandhi. Rajmohan Gandhi explains in that book why, unlike the other leaders in the freedom struggle, Nehru alone transcended the boundaries of language, of religion, of gender. He was a North Indian trusted by our South Indians. He was a Hindu who reached out to Muslims, and he was a man who believed in equal rights for women. In all respects like Gandhi, and in all respects unlike the more parochial, sectarian, provincial leaders of the freedom movement. So there was Nehru. There was uh, Sardar Patel, uh, also the subject of a wonderful book by Rajmohan Gandhi. Uh, and they ha actually had a great partnership. Again, what they did in history is quite different from how they are represented today. They, they, were, you know, they had disagreements. I mean, like brother and sister, professor and student, husband and wife. But they knew that they complemented one another. Patel was the organization man. He ran the administration. He developed the bureaucracy, unified the princely states. Nehru was the vision man who had uh, this moral understanding of how a country could be united despite religious linguistic differences. He had an international perspective, and they worked together. Then there was a third figure uh, who was educated in this country, B.R. Ambedkar, the chief draftsman of the Indian Constitution, who came from an untouchable background. And being an untouchable in India was, and sometimes is, like being an African-American in this country. Because caste is to India what race is here. And this is the bottom of the caste hierarchy. Ambedkar becoming law minister. Ambedkar drafted the Constitution of India 60 years before Obama broke the barrier here and became president. And it's a long and complex story. It's also a story that has uh, other American parallels. There's a great book that uh, President Obama liked called The Team of Rivals. Right. Now, the first cabinet of independent India was the Team of Rivals. Nehru and Patel were from the Congress party that led the freedom struggle under Gandhi's, uh, Gandhi's leadership. But Ambedkar was from a rival party. And he, to the 30s and 40s, he opposed the Congress. So was the finance minister who was from South India, a man called Sanmogam Shetty was an opponent of the Congress Party. But the first cabinet of Free India that was needed at a time of such painful transition to uh, unify the country, 
to decide upon a constitution to move towards universal adult franchise was a team of rivals. And there were many remarkable figures. I've mentioned three. Uh, uh, there were some extraordinary women who were particularly involved in refugee rehabilitation. I'll mention one. There was a, sadly, she has not got her due in terms of a top-class historical biography. You know, Ambedkar, Patel, Nehru, Gandhi have had books written about them. Her name was Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay. She was absolutely the greatest Indian woman of the 20th century, far greater than Indira Gandhi. And with a profound impact on this country. In the 1930s, Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay came here and traveled through the American South telling African-American activists about the power of nonviolence. This is well before King heard of Gandhi. And this journey of Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay is described in a wonderful book by a young American scholar called Nico Slate. The book is called Colored Cosmopolitanism. After independence, Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay led, led the organization to resettle the refugees from the Punjab, to give people displaced home, hope, livelihood. So it was an extraordinary group. I've mentioned just four or five. There were many, many others. So I think one of the lessons of the history of independent India to explain why this startup, which no one gave a chance, everyone wrote it off. You know, uh, Churchill said it'll go back into medieval barbarism. Uh, when the first elections were held in 1952, the CIA said there'll never be another election in India. When the rains collapsed in the late 1950s, a Stanford biologist wrote, 40 million Indians will die because they breed like rabbits. Everyone wrote it off, but it largely because why did a moderately successful and somewhat democratic India survive? Largely because of the quality of its first generation of leaders, you know, and I could uh, say much more about them. But that's one lesson of that leadership. That leadership matters a great deal at the founding. Now, I want to say a little bit about Pakistan. And Pakistan has, you know, it's still around. But uh, objectively, it has some remarkable people. It has an extraordinary active press. It's actually, its journalists are more courageous than our journalists. Its social activists are often more, more uh, dynamic than our social activists. For example, if you go to the city of Karachi and you study what uh, uh, the great Akhtar Hamid Khan of the Orangi project has done, much more for the urban poor than any Indian So, So there are many extraordinary things about Pakistan. But politically, it is broken into two. You know, it was united on the basis of religion, but Bangladesh was created because the Urdu language was imposed in the East. So it's not united. That, that respect, uh, the Pakistan project has failed. It's much less reliably democratic than India. You know, uh, we have general elections. In Pakistan, occasionally, you have the election of the generals. <laughs> There's much more sectarian violence in Pakistan than in ours. Now, however, I don't want to gloat about this for several reasons, but as a historian, I want to say that among the reasons that Pakistan has fared worse than India is that it's had bad luck. History and geography have dealt it uh, a much worse deal than India. India has been fortunate compared to Pakistan in several respects. Luck can play a very important role in history. Firstly, it's 
major leader, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, died within a year of its founding. Gandhi chose Nehru, who was much younger than him, and Nehru lived on for 15 years. So the founder of the Pakistani state died of illness and old age within a year of its founding, whereas the founder of the Indian state, Nehru, was able to oversee a transition over a fairly long period. Uh, Nehru may have stayed too long, but we are lucky he didn't die in 1948 or 49. So that's, that's, that's one reason that we were luckier than Pakistan. The second reason we were luckier than Pakistan is that uh, partly because Jinnah died, and partly, uh, well, it's, it's more complicated than that. The second reason we were luckier than Pakistan, or Pakistan was desperately unfortunate, is that the military came to play a disproportionate role in its politics, and that's, again, because of demography. In the Second World War, more than a million Indians served on the British side. And a large proportion of them came from Punjab. And Punjab went to Pakistan. So when the army was divided, some, you know, it was massively dominated by Punjabi Muslims. So the military became much more important in Pakistan than in India. Uh, the third reason is that, and this is to do with Americans and Russians, Pakistan became a frontline state in the Cold War. India was insulated from the Cold War. Pakistan bordered Afghanistan and Iran. And when the Cold War became hot between Russia and America, Pakistan had to take sides. We were fortunate because we were insulated by Pakistan. We didn't have to take sides. Pakistan had to take sides. And for whatever reason, they chose the Americans, which meant that the army became stronger because more and more money poured in to fund the Pakistani army against the Soviets who were encroaching on Afghanistan. So the army became stronger, democracy, democracy shrank. Further, the, after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and there was a rebellion against the Soviets, funded by the Americans, the funding went mostly to radical Islamic groups. And this led to a further uh, radicalization of religion in in, 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 in Pakistan. So because Pakistan was a frontline state in the Cold War, its military became more powerful, its civilian administration was undermined. Because Pakistan became a frontline state in the Cold War, religion became much more important in its politics than in Indian politics. And finally, because Pakistan became a frontline state in the Cold War, as a result of the tragedy continuing, and unfolding tragedy of Afghanistan, it had to deal with the burden of tens of millions of refugees. So luck can play quite an important role. And Indians who gloat over the relative failure of Pakistan should be more sympathetic to their neighbor for this, these reasons, that history and geography had dealt them a bad head. Now, what about the present? I live in India, and uh, I see it, it's complications every day. There's a, there's a lovely line, uh, I thought coming from Jawaharlal Nehru, because it sounds like Jawaharlal Nehru, but I can't find a, uh, a citation for it, which goes something like this. India is home to all that is most noble, as well as all that is most disgusting in the human experience. And 
America is also home to all that is most beautiful and all that is most barbaric in the human experience. That's what joins us. So if you travel through India, you can see beauty and you can see barbarism. You can see progress, you can see reaction. You can see democracy, you can see division. And it's hard to say where the balance lies. Is India worse off today than it was 10 or 15 years ago? At one level, it is worse off. There is more insecurity among religious minorities because there's a rise of aggressive Hindu fundamentalism. Public institutions such as the judiciary, the police are weaker, uh, less robust than they were 10 or 15 years ago. But at, a, at another level, there's progress. The caste system is being dismantled. Lower castes are more assertive, more organized uh, uh, than they ever were at any time in Indian history. Women are more assertive, more organized than at any time in Indian history. But the worries would be on the fault line of religion and the functioning of public institutions. That among the tragedies of Pakistan, Pakistan was served a bad luck by the death of its founder, by its being a frontline state in the Cold War, but it was also a flawed idea from the beginning because Pakistan, the idea of Pakistan was to fuse religion with politics. Gandhi and Nehru wisely chose to divorce religion from politics. Gandhi and Nehru said after partition, India will not be a Hindu Pakistan. There's a famous speech of Nehru shortly after partition where he's telling Indians, however Pakistan, uh, however Pakistan treats Hindus and Sikhs, we must treat our Muslim minority in a civilized manner and give them the same rights as anyone else. Now, that vision of an India which, in which religion does not matter in politics is under threat. Fortunately, the other aspect of the Gandhian Nehruvian vision, that India is a land not just of religious pluralism, but linguistic pluralism, that remains. And Sherman mentioned this. I think this is a great lesson that Americans can learn from India. Don't be insecure if parts of California start speaking Spanish. No problem. You know, there have been attempts to impose Hindi, which is the language of about 30% of North India, on the rest of India. And these, these, uh, uh, these attempts have been well-meaning in that well-meaning that they're not malign. They, they, they come from a sense that to unite a nation, you need a single language. Uh, so there was an episode about 20 years ago where the chief minister of the state of Uttar Pradesh, which is India's largest state and a Hindi-speaking state, wrote a letter to the chief minister of Kerala in Hindi. And the reply came back in Malayalam. <laughs> and he quickly got the message. And not only did he send the next letter in English, but his son also went to an English language school. So I think linguistic pluralism is one aspect of our founding principle, uh, which is actually our great contribution to the theory of democracy and nation building. We Indians have proved that you do not have to all speak a single language to be loyal or good or patriotic citizens. To be a good Indian, a patriotic Indian, you do not have to be a Hindu. You do not have to speak Hindi. And you do not even have to hate Pakistan. <laughs> now, this is something which is, uh, you know, uh, I'm glad eliciting a few delighted and approving laughs here. But in my country now, it's a controversial, uh, it's controversial statement to make. But I would like to emphasize that uh, as I end my remarks. 
that the vision of India that Gandhi and Nehru and Ambedkar and Patel and Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay and many others bequeath, the vision that has kept us together is one in which nationalism and patriotism is not defined by allegiance to a single language, uh, a single religion or a common enemy is defined by a shared allegiance to a set of democratic and plural values. Now, I will end with, as I must, with a remark about cricket. <laughs> now, I said that among the hypothetical questions that are posed they are about partition are, could it have been avoided? One. Two. Could the sufferings have been minimized? And three, which I've not put before you, would a united India have been better off? Right. Now, this is a debate that goes on. Uh, I actually am not sure that it would have been better off, except in one respect. We would have had an unbeaten and undefeated cricket team. <laughs> uh, which is just as well that we are not united, because if we had had a cricket team that, could have not, uh, that would have won every match ever played, that would have been the case. I mean, if we had Pakistani fast bowlers and Indian batsmen and Bangladeshi wicketkeepers, I mean, are there any Bangladeshis here? Well, one of my favorite cricketers today is the Bangladeshi wicketkeeper, uh, <coughs> Mustafizur Rahman, Mushfikur Rahman. So if he'd had, you know, uh, Pakistani bowlers, Indian batsmen, and Bangladeshi wicketkeepers, the, uh, the Australians and the English who dominate cricket, the Australians and the English and the South Africans would have been so defeated and demoralized, they would have abandoned cricket and taken to baseball instead. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's the only way. I suppose I should have a story about American football, but I don't. Um, I, I want to start with some good news. You've heard of the Rohingya refugees and the very unfortunate response of the Indian government. Uh, pretty disgusting response. But a group of amazing Sikh gentlemen, Sikhs, Sardars, as we call them, are there at the Burma-Bangladesh border, and they are feeding thousands and thousands of Rohingya refugees. Second piece of good news, uh, you know, the 70th anniversary of independence partition has uh, produced a lot of reflection in different parts of India. And, and fortunately, quite a few people have, have reflected on this question, the second of uh, Ram's questions, could the suffering have been reduced or avoided? Uh, one of the places where a good deal of violence took place uh, one of many parts of Punjab where killings took place. By the way, the killings in Punjab, uh, my own estimate is about 500,000, but others have larger figures, but I, I could be wrong. Uh, 500,000 is a huge figure. Uh, what is worth knowing is that by some strange parity, where that parity originated, God alone knows, 
Hindus and Sikhs were killed and Muslims were killed in roughly equal numbers. If you ask people in Pakistan today what happened in Punjab in 47, they will tell you that hundreds of thousands, they may even say millions of Muslims were killed. If you ask people in India, in India's Punjab, what happened in about 47, they will say that millions of Hindus and Sikhs were killed. Uh, in Ludhiana, one of the biggest cities of Indian Punjab, great many Muslims were killed. Great many Muslims were killed. Just as in many parts of West Punjab, great many Sikhs and Hindus were killed. But just the other day in Ludhiana, some old people gathered and had what they called a time of attempt at atonement. Uh, and this is what, uh, what they said. Um, partition wasn't just about India and Pakistan, it was about Punjab. We were one family until we were cut into two halves. And for us to make peace with our past, we have to first admit we sinned and then seek forgiveness for our actions. Now, 70 years ago, these killings took place. But this kind of desire to feel really bad about it, to want to atone for it, is relatively recent. It's, 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 it, that's a sad thing to, to recognize. But when I heard this news, I was reminded of that uh, uh, 2015 incident in Charleston, South Carolina, where after the killings in the church, the relatives of the killed offered their forgiveness to the killer when they first met the killer. That was astonishing. And then I think many of you would have seen what happened shortly thereafter when Obama and the large community in Charleston had this time of grief uh, about the incident, and Obama broke into uh, the, those lines of amazing grace. And that was, an, to me, it was the most important uh, event of 2015, as far as I was concerned, in the United States. Uh, the American people. Uh, facing grief and wanting also to go beyond it and, and to, to heal it. And this, uh, this uh, thing in Ludhiana reminded me of, of that. Now, uh, there, there was a scholar at Howard University, Washington DC called Stuart Nelson, an African-American scholar. He visited India in 1946-47 and he saw Gandhi a few times. This was before the terrible killings of 47, but already in 46, there were very serious killings. In Calcutta first, then East Bengal, then Bihar, then West UP, then Punjab. And Stuart Nelson asked Gandhi, he met Gandhi. Gandhi was in East Bengal trying to bring some uh, solace and courage to in that part of the world, Hindus were the victims. Thereafter, Gandhi went to Bihar, where Muslims were the victims. Um, Stuart Nelson said to Gandhi, you've been teaching India nonviolence for 30 years. Why this killing? 
So Gandhi's answer was some, somewhat like this. I urged Indians to fear not and to hate not. The first message was more popular than the second message. Nehru, in his uh, understanding or appraisal of Gandhi's impact on India, he said his most amazing impact was uh, fearlessness. Indians suddenly became fearless when it came to fighting the British imperialist nation. But hate not that message from Gandhi, according to Gandhi, did not get through. Uh, India's movement for freedom was a nonviolent movement, and it was an astonishing movement. And as Ram Gohas told you, it was followed by some remarkable visionary leaders. But we have to recognize that Indian society today remains very violent. Violent to women, violent to the untouchables, and often violent to vulnerable minorities. Now, I will go briefly into, into history, and I'm not sure I quite agree with Ram that 1939 uh, is what we should think about, but that between 1939 and 47, what happened was kind of inevitable. I, I don't know. I, I somehow I, I'm not sure that we can absolve uh, all those people who were living in between 1939 and 1947 in India and Pakistan, today's Pakistan. Yes, the British were certainly responsible, but I think the Indians too have to see where they could have done better in the years between 1939 and 1947. Unless we can go back to that period and learn some lessons, uh, I think we may be missing some, some important points. Now, here are my observations about, about that period, or even an, uh, some uh, observation about earlier periods, too. Uh, there were three very great freedom movements in India. Uh, 1857, there was a huge revolt. It was a violent revolt. It, uh, it achieved remarkable success for some time, but then it was suppressed. Then there was the 1920 non-cooperation movement, which was on a huge scale, nationwide scale, huge movement. And then there was a, the 1942 Quit India movement. There were other movements also. There was the 1930 Salt March uh, uh, movement. After 1857, after 1920, and after 1942, after each of those great movements, and these movements did see Hindu-Muslim joint participation especially the 1857 one and the 1921, and to some extent the 1942 one also. But it seems to be a fact of history to me that after each of those great movements, Hindu-Muslim relationship plunged downwards. After each of those movements. This is something that we have to think about. Um, an irony about the Pakistan that was created uh, as some of you may know, there was a resolution in March of 1940, shortly after World War II started. Uh, you know, here, of course, World War II starts with Pearl Harbor. But for 
Europe and for India, World War II starts in September 39, when Hitler attacked Poland. In March of 1940, uh, the Muslim League, which was the largest political party uh, of the Muslim community across India, undivided India, had this resolution asking for sovereign states, plural, in the northwestern part of India, as it then was, and in the eastern part of India, as it then was. What today is Bangladesh, and what today is Pakistan. Sovereign states where the Muslims are the majority community. This was the demand. Now, along with the demand was this conviction that was expressed again and again. that Hindus and Muslims are two different nations. This was called the two-nation theory, that Hindus and Muslims are two different nations. They cannot live together, and the Muslims must have their own homeland. Now, this seemed identical to the demand for a Muslim-majority area to be turned into Pakistan. But of course, it was very different from that because there were so many Muslims in what would remain India, in Hindu-majority provinces. Now, the Muslim-majority parts of the subcontinent that got Pakistan, Northwest Frontier Province, Sindh, West Punjab, Balochistan, Bangladesh, the Muslim-majority in these areas was not only substantial, in many of these parts, it was a preponderant majority. The Muslims of those parts that got Pakistan did not need Pakistan. There was no fear of Hindu domination there. The parts of India that where the Muslim minority needed extra security remained with India. The, the regions that did not need Pakistan got it. The regions that needed security did not get it. This is the great irony of the Pakistan demand, which has to be recognized and understood. Um, during the campaign for Pakistan and the campaign to resist Pakistan, the two-nation theory was fervently discussed. Hindus and Muslims are two nations. No, Hindus and Muslims are not two nations. This was the great debate. It was a theoretical debate. It was an emotional debate. But the practical debate that India needed at that stage was, should Punjab be divided? Should Bengal be divided? Because what did partition do to India as a whole? It left every Indian province or state intact. The vast Bombay province did not change. The vast Madras presidency did not change. Bihar, UP, Delhi, Madhya Pradesh, Sindh, Northwest Frontier Province, Balochistan did not change. Only two provinces were cut up. As these people in Ludhiana said, Punjab was divided. Bengal was divided. All the other parts of the subcontinent remained intact. Yes, in Assam, there was a portion of Assam called Silhet, 
which also was detached from Assam and was joined to East Pakistan. So the practical issue, should Punjab be divided? Should Bengal be divided? Was not at all discussed. The, the passionate debates across the subcontinent from 1940 to 1947 were whether the two nation theory was valid or not. And I know that uh, there is a uh, significant section of, uh, of historians even who, who write, and some very good historians, that Mr. Jinnah did not really want Pakistan. That Pakistan was only a bargaining counter. That he wanted better a better deal for the Muslims of the entire subcontinent. This may have been uh, true inside his mind. We don't know. I, I have no means of knowing what was inside his mind or heart. But it is a fact that from 1940 to 1947, at every single meeting of the Muslim League, during every election campaign for provincial elections, state elections, local elections, Pakistan was the issue, and the two-nation theory was the issue. Hindus and Muslims cannot live together. We have to have Pakistan. This was demanded. And on the opposite side, again, a furious uh, uh, notion not only that Hindus and Muslims can live together, but India is one nation and we'll never allow India to be divided into two. That Mother India will never allow, will never allow the vivisection breaking up of Mother India. So this emotional debate took place. But whether Pakistan, Punjab should be divided, and why were Punjab and Bengal different from all the other provinces? It's important to know this detail. Uh, in all the other parts of India, the religious proportion were, were quite clear. Either Hindus were predominant or Muslims were predominant. But in these two very large parts, Punjab and Bengal, one half had a Muslim majority, one half had a Muslim minority. Where should the boundary line be drawn? People say, all right, if they had to be partitioned, couldn't they have been decided peacefully, um, without violence? Well, both sides were absolutely clear that they, were, that they wanted the whole thing. I'm putting it in a simplified manner. Um, but it's, it's important to note that until the very last time when the actual line was decided not by one man, you know, people say that this just Judge Radcliffe came and he drew the line. This, this is an argument that you often read, that this English judge suddenly made his first last visit to India. He drew a line on a map and this is, what's, uh, this is where uh, Punjab should be divided. This is how Bengal should be divided. This is uh, an exaggeration. Radcliffe was not alone. There were four judges with him in Bengal and in Punjab. And these were Indian judges, two Hindus, two Muslims in each case. And because the Indian judges had totally opposite views, it was all left to one Englishman, Radcliffe. And yes, he did uh, draw a line, right or wrong, uh, fair or unfair. 
People in Pakistan still say it is totally pro-India. People in India say that it was pro-Pakistan. But Radcliffe did draw a line because the Indians on the two sides in Punjab and Bengal were unwilling to agree how it should be, it should be divided. Now, during the negotiations for years before partition finally was accepted by all sides, one big issue was what should be the Muslim representations if India was to be united, if there was to be one India? How many seats in the central parliament should be kept for Muslims? Um, the Muslim percentage of undivided India was approximately 25%. And the Muslim League and its leader, Mr. Jinnah, uh, said that 33% of the seats in any central parliament should be for Muslims. That if this was agreed to, and there were some other conditions too, then maybe we could agree to a united India. 33% of the central assembly should be Muslims. The Congress party, which did not want division, uh, finally said, yeah, all right, 25% you have the population. We will agree to 27% of Muslim seats in the central parliament. As Ram Goha has pointed out, Pakistan became kind of an Islamic state. India decided it would not be a Hindu state. But today, in the Indian parliament, for a 14.5% Muslim population, what is the number of Muslims in the Indian parliament? Less than 5%. Before long, there will be 200 million Muslims in India. And in Indian parliament today, the percentage of Muslims in parliament is below 5 um, and, and those that are there come from some parts of India, some from Kashmir, some from Bengal. Otherwise, uh, the Muslims of the rest of India seem to have no representation in the Indian parliament. This is a reality that should be recognized today, and it's not. Um, I don't know whether I should... Uh, discuss some more tedious details, but maybe obviously the answer is I should not. The, uh, the cabinet mission plan, I, I don't think that the Gandhi plan of making Jinnah the Prime Minister of India was necessarily going to succeed, but I don't think it should be rejected out of hand as a romantic idea, because this was suggested by Gandhi uh, in March and April of 1947, as a means of, and he specifically spoke of it as a way to avoid violence in Punjab, it was accompanied by a plan to, dis, to agree to disband all the militia that had by this time arisen. There was a Hindu militia, a Sikh militia, a Muslim militia. Um, and it was not put to Jinnah the Congress party turned down this idea of Gandhi's, rejected it. Uh, I don't say it would have worked, uh, but it is worth looking at that plan. And of course, it is worth also looking at what happened when it, it was summarily rejected. 
Um, I said that instead of practical discussions on whether Punjab and Bengal should be divided or not, if they had to be divided, what should be the criteria for dividing them? The discussion was on the two nation theory with one side saying that yes, Hindus and Muslims are two nations, they can live to, never live together. The other side saying no, they are one nation and in any case India is one and should not be divided. But today, today's India, there is a very large section of the Indian nation and the political class and the intellectual class that has totally accepted the two nation theory. That the Muslims are different and they cannot be a natural, normal part of the Indian nation. And this is a, a remarkable development that has to be recognized. Um, I will only add now that uh, despite this serious situation in today's India um, and the unwillingness of the Indian population at this stage to resist the slide towards some kind of second class status for India's Muslims, uh, we have to recognize this unfortunate situation and yet also recognize that there is a significant number of people all across India who are determined to fight to protect what the Indian Constitution says and to be sure that tomorrow, if not today, and day after tomorrow, if not tomorrow, and next year, if not this year, five years down the line, if not now, that India will truly be a nation where not only all languages, but all religious groups, all caste groups, women and men, that India will show equality, equal rights, freedom of expression, freedom of organization, freedom of uh, propagation of your views, uh, that India will, will be like that and uh, try to be some kind of an example to the world. When did partition become inevitable? To me, it seems that um, what was at work was what one would call a law of unintended consequences. Uh, Jinnah, despite the fact that after the 1940s, Jinnah and the Muslim League harped on the, the, the creation of Pakistan, I don't think that they were really serious because it was still the All India Muslim League. And it's one of those ironies that the All India Muslim League was demanding the partition of India for the simple reason that the Muslim League was set up in order, as, as Rajmohan said, to provide security and protect the interests of the Muslims where they were most vulnerable, which was in the minority provinces. So on the majority provinces, Pakistan-like greatness was thrust upon them, whereas in the minority provinces, the situation deteriorated. Now, could it, and, and on the, just, just a remark on the division of Punjab and Bengal, I, I agree that it is a very understudied subject. Uh, when the Congress raised the slogan, Quit India, in 1942, the Muslim League said, Divide and Quit. When Divide and Quit became the policy of the British government, the Congress demanded, if you divide India, 
then you divide Bengal and Punjab as well. And I think in a way, I mean, looking at back, looking back at it, that it was an error because had, and this of course led to the division of Punjab and Bengal and led to Jinnah's remark that he had been given a moth-eaten truncated Pakistan. But had Punjab and Bengal not been divided, the story would have been very different. There, would been, there, would been, there could have been different outcomes. Pakistan would have had a close to 45% Hindu minority and would have, I believe, collapsed under its own weight. The, uh, the, the movement of people would, not, would have been minimized because they wouldn't have had to leave the lands. It would have been one province, Bengal and Punjab, would have remained as, 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 as unitary provinces. Uh, and that would have lessened the human tragedies. Uh, the, the division of Bengal and Punjab could have also, I mean, the, the, if, if, you, it, if, if it was avoided, it could have led to an emergence of a Bangladesh in 1947, as Sarah Chandra Bose and Hussain Jahid uh, had had advocated. So I think that needs to be studied in much greater detail. And there's one thing I know, I discussed this with Ramachandra Guha yesterday. Uh, I have this pet theory that one of the turning points was and, 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 and Dr. Guha disagreed. One of the turning points was, the, was Gandhi's rejection or the Congress's rejection of the Ramsey MacDonald Award because in 1932. Because if you accept the fact that the demand for separatism, if not separa separation, on the part of the Muslim elite was driven primarily because of a feeling of insecurity vis-a-vis -vis the caste Hindu elite, the division of the separate electorates among general or Hindu, depressed classes and Muslims would have to a significant extent reduce that feeling of insecurity because uh, the depressed classes would have had their own, or the untouchables, would have had their own, own uh, elect, would have had their own electorate and could have been seen as potential allies. Uh, by the Muslim elite. And I wonder, I mean, as these are all the ifs of history, but I was wondering whether we have not under, and the Pune Pact, I think Mahatma Gandhi's uh, fast unto death on that issue uh, was, I mean, as I told um, Dr. Guha yesterday, was trying to save the unity of Hindus, but was, 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 was in, in, in a way it undermined the, the unity of India. Uh, had, had the Pune Pact not happened and the McDonald Award, Ryan's McDonald Award, been implemented, we might have had a different outcome. No, we miss you, Professor, and we, tomorrow we'll have a chance to continue at this because Professor Gandhi and you will, will be at 8.30. Uh, other comments and questions? What was the role of Mahatma Gandhi in the final decision of partition? And when did he nod or give a nod? Did he give a nod to, yes, the partition should take place, or he was silent, or when did he say, what he had to say. Yeah. I'd like to answer that. Uh, you know, uh, I think what is important, not, we don't really know. Firstly, it was not in his powers to either stop it uh, or not stop it. The British were in power. The decision was taken uh, by the Viceroy and his advisors. And the negotiators were the Muslim League and the Congress Party, and Gandhi was not in the Congress. So I think... First of all, it, the, the, but the more important thing, and I think this is something we should all ask, because I think we should not get into a mood of mourning and loss and nostalgia. The question that is to be asked is, when partition happened, what did Gandhi do? And what did the others do? 
he put his life on the line to save the Hindus of Noakhali and the Muslims of Bihar. And he was then going, if he had not been murdered by a fanatic, he was going across to protect the minorities in Pakistan. That is what the question we should ask. And why did the other leaders of that time, both Indians and Pakistanis, not follow Gandhi's example and give their days, their nights, their food, their life for Hindu-Muslim unity, firstly? And secondly, what can we in India and Pakistan today working for Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Christian, Buddhist, how many do to further that? That would be my answer to your question. I sometimes feel it's the unsettled territory like Kashmir that has caused more gray hairs than uh, division of Punjab uh, and Bengal. The other point I was going to talk about when you said that look at, we have 14 plus percent of Muslims in India, but yet only 5% are in parliament. Well, uh, I'll give you the similar theory. We have more than 50% females in USA, but no, we do not have 50% uh, elected officials that are females. We sometimes like to put extra weight on something that will incite some people. Why don't we resolve basic problems and live a better life for everybody? Thank you. I'll try and answer this. Okay. Um, you know that what you say is absolutely correct, and the same applies, by the way, uh, India also has 50% women. <laughs> so uh, Indian, Indian women also uh, are, don't have enough representation in, in, in parliament. But it's also a fact that 15% of the Dalits have 15% representation. 8% uh, eight, tribals have also their representation, 8% in, in parliament. The so-called OBCs have also substantial representation in government services and in parliament. Uh, and yes, maybe the Muslims should be satisfied with 4%. Uh, and maybe they should not think of themselves as Muslims. Uh, but uh, people do, rightly or wrongly. They do think of themselves in group terms. And uh, if you don't have representation, this builds up feelings of, of grievances and it can come out in all kinds of forms. It's not a very happy situation. I just uh, underline that. You know, I think uh, also not just numbers, uh, individuals. So uh, what part of Gandhi's greatness was that they were great. He had important leaders in the Congress Party from South India, not just from North India. Muslims, not just Hindus, Parsis, Christians. Now, what do we do today? For example, the party ruling India today has 282 MPs, a majority in the parliament, not one of them is a Muslim, if I'm not wrong. So what is the message you're sending? We don't, we, we don't think any Muslim is important enough in our party to give in. The one Muslim who's a minister is given the responsibility to look after Muslims alone. Right. Whereas uh, when Gandhi and Nehru were there, you know, you could have had 
a Sikh who was defense minister, Baldev Singh, you could have had a Muslim who was education minister, right? And so on and so forth, right? So I think uh, also it's not just numbers, it is symbols, you know, who, if you want to be a all in, if you want to say we are the lead, a party that represents all of India, uh, surely a top leadership should reflect to some extent that, not fully. Clearly some, some communities, will, you can't have, you can't do it exactly by proportion. You can't say we have 8% Bengalis, so 8% cabinet ministers be Bengalis, right? But I think this, this uh, idea of the rainbow nation, pluralism, right? Now, Gandhi practiced it, Mandela practiced it. Now, I'm, I'm part of Mandela's greatness uh, was that he reached out to the whites. He also reached out to the Indians. I mean, there's an extraordinary uh, 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 remark when he became uh, president and somebody complained that the reverse, there are too many Indians in your cabinet. No, there was a yeah. complaint to Mandela where he said Indians were whatever, you know, uh, I don't know what percent, but yeah. maybe they were 20% in the cabinet and only 10% in the population. So someone said, uh, you know, this is undermining the, uh, the Africans. And Mandela said, the number, the Indians in the cabinet are uh, greater than their proportion in the population, but less than their, less than their con proportion than their contribution to the freedom movement. So, likewise, the way he reached So, I think this is a lesson which the BJP, which rules us today, could learn from Gandhi and Mandela. You know, uh, because that, the kind of confidence it would inspire in women, in Muslims, in, you know, in Christians to say, look, we're not ghettoized into some small leadership, you know, we, the foreign minister or uh, the education minister or the defense minister. Uh, are, you, are you telling me that there is not a single Muslim who's capable of being defense minister or foreign minister? The only Muslim minister must be minority affairs, that's it. So I think that's also an important uh, uh, lesson that I think Indian politics can learn today. Yeah. Gandhi, you did mention about uh, Jinnah and you alluded to the fact that uh, since 1940 to 46, you specifically said that whatever meeting that he attended, he was kind of putting forward this demand of a separate nation. I have I've, I've seen a couple of movies and documentaries which state that Jinnah was actually opposed to the idea of a separate nation for quite long. So my question is, is that correct? And if there was a change in his stance, what were the reasons behind that, that change? Uh, I, I have studied this with great care. I find absolutely no evidence that Jinnah uh, was prepared, uh, had abandoned the goal of Pakistan. He, 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 it was his goal in March 1940. In, he, he made that very famous and powerful speech in Lahore in March 1940. And again and again he repeated it. And when Gandhi and Nehru had, Gandhi and Jinnah had their 14 conversations in September of 1944, those are very important conversations. 14 times they talked. Uh, and Gandhi offered something that was quite, uh, at, at that time, it, the rest of the Congress were opposed to the offer that Gandhi made. Uh, and many of Jinnah's supporters afterwards said that if you had accepted that, we could have had Pakistan without the violence. Uh, and, and so the only time where Jinnah seemed to accept something less than separate Pakistan was the cabinet mission plan, the tedious plan that I was going to discuss, but I decided not to. Uh, when he said, 
that he would accept it. But with the proviso that all of Punjab, all of Bengal, all of Assam, all of that should be part of the Pakistan area. And that after 10 years, they should have the, the chance to secede. And even when, even when Jinnah said that he was willing to accept the cabinet mission plan there, at that time, along with his acceptance of the cabinet mission plan, which was for a united India, the Muslim League at that stage passed an official resolution saying that complete sovereign Pakistan remains our unalterable goal. Let, let me just follow up, follow up on that. Yeah, I, I just want to say something that maybe I didn't make my question clear. I was mentioning about the period before 1940s and then when... when oh, the before 1940s? Yeah, before 1940s maybe. Ah, the Lucknow Pact and whatever, huh? uh, we became hearing... Lucknow Pact and so on. Yeah, I, okay, sorry. I think, I think all the 1940s I would completely endorse uh, Rajmohan's position. You know, it's possible in the 20s and the 30s, that was, you know, that certain... Uh, um, Divergences took place, you know, the non-cooperation movement which Jinnah opposed and then he was shouted down and heckled by Gandhi's followers, actually at the famous meeting in Nagpur in 1920. So they could have, could have been, but certainly from the 1940s, I mean, I think, um, it, and if you look at the speeches that Jinnah gave, so yes, I mean, and this is where maybe we disagree because I think I would say yes, in the 20s and 30s, in 1937, there were these elections. Uh, if the Congress and the Muslim League in the major state of Uttar Pradesh had had an alliance, uh, United Provinces, so, uh, you know, these are, if said, it's hard to say. You know, I, but I, I still, I, again, this may be a, uh, a gentle disagreement that I have with both uh, Professor Ayub and uh, Professor Gandhi, is, you know, I think uh, this is, it's an important, of course, it's an important question. Could partition have been avoided? But sometimes, too much uh, emotional and intellectual energy is spent on that question, which would be better spent on how can India and Pakistan have better relations today, including solving the Kashmir problem, and how can India and Pakistan independently do justice to the religious minorities and underprivileged sections of their own population. So uh, this is, in a sense, there's a, you know, because, you know, Maybe there's too much loss and lament in all of this. Of course, scholars should study it, right? But because it's now, the, several generations of Indians and Pakistanis have grown up with no memory of partition. And what's important to them is how to build their lives today, including relations between India and Pakistan. So let Indians in their 20s and their 30s go to Pakistan. Let Pakistanis in their 20s and Indian 30s travel to India and build a new kind of like the French and the Germans today. The French and the Germans don't say in the world war we were on opposite sides. Could we have been together? Right. So in a sense, that's, that's, so it's, of course it's an important scholarly question, but are we expending too much emotional energy on it is, is really my worry. Yeah. No, I, I agree with Ram on that one, that uh, the question of whether Pakistan could have been avoided or at what stage is an academic question. The question of India-Pakistan relations, Hindu-Muslim relations in Pakistan, Muslim-Christian relations in Pakistan, Hindu-Muslim relations in India, yeah. relations Christian Sikhs and all the community in India, those are practical questions and our emotional energy must be devoted to that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we've come close to the end. I wanted to say just a couple of things, especially to the students. I mean, I think 
I certainly am not an expert in this, and the level of discussion here uh, was, was is at times just so amazing and even a, a little bit overwhelming. But I really hope that you understand the importance of how these multiple questions of citizenship and justice and reconciliation and difference, which uh, take place throughout the world, are important now. I mean, we still haven't solved our own problems. We cer certainly, they, they exist uh, in many countries. And then secondly, I, I hope sometimes it's easier to see some of the, our own issues reflected in uh, and that may not be wholly a, a great scholarly method, but sometimes it's easier to see our own issues reflected in others. I mean, I know sometimes uh, travelers go and to places and what's this Hindu-Muslim thing? It's an easy thing. I mean, why don't you just do this and that? And then people come over here and say, why do you have these race problems? But I think reflecting on who human beings are and what so societies um, you sort of have to confront, I think, are really important. But I think the thing that I like about this generation, about the people I've seen in our, my own college, but also the young Indians I've met, is I just don't, I, I think they understand they live in a world, not just in a small corner. I mean, you, if you ask, I, like in, in my day in Madison, they would, a professor would have asked, have you ever been anywhere? The answer would have been no. I mean, I've been fishing in Canada. <laughs> I've seen parts of Michigan, right? And you look at this audience, and it's a different audience than would have been here in 1973. There was no Hindu temple in, uh, in Hazlitt. I can guarantee that. <laughs> I was here. And I think that world, we have to accept it. It's an amazing challenge. And it's not an American century, and it's not even an Indian century or a... Brazilian century, I think it's a global century, and I think uh, the thing about that's so great about our students here is they have this opportunity to go to this country, and Indians have the opportunity to come here, and not just technologically, but I think actually meeting people face to face, and I think you've got a little taste of that today with, you know, just really some of the best minds from India and, and some real friends of ours, and I think the thing that makes me hopeful is not usually politics, but often education. You're here. We can think through some of these problems. We can think around some of these problems. Um, we can kind of get to know people and understand that there are tremendous differences and tremendous disagreements, but I don't think uh, there necessarily needs to be hate and violence. Um, there will be violent people in the world, but I like to stand with, with these two and with the rest of you. So I, I hope you'll join me in thanking the two speakers, and you'll show up tomorrow. <laughs>